by the end of the summer and into the fall, I was no longer buying fruit from the supermarket. Wow. I was completely independent. I was getting all of my you know, fruit needs from the streets of Boulder. This is the Modern Domestique podcast, where each episode focuses on a different aspect of modern home economics. It's all about exploring a way of life that enhances our community and environment from where it all begins, in the home. I'm Stacy Keating, and this episode is an interview with Ethan, who's one of the founders of an interactive foraging map, Falling Fruit. Falling Fruit is a website dedicated to urban foraging. On their website, you'll find an edible map that they describe as a celebration of the overlooked culinary bounty of our city streets. They go on to say that through the map, their hope is to facilitate intimate connections between people, food, and the natural organisms growing in our neighborhoods. If you've been following my blog for a while, you know that I'm all about urban foraging. I love to go out and see what's growing around me and come up with different ways to use the flowers or fruit that I find. Foraging helps me feel connected not only to the space around me, but also to the seasons. Ethan adds to my sentiment during the interview, saying that it's also a fun way to feed ourselves locally from these plants that we're sharing our neighborhood with. And I thought that that was a really sweet and gentle way to look at urban foraging. Ethan also brings up the idea that urban foraging is a great way to discover a city, which is something that I wholeheartedly agree with. I've talked before about how much I love visiting farmers markets when I'm on vacation, and the Falling Fruit app can seriously take that to a whole new level. Urban foraging while traveling, I am really excited to try this next time. I can't think of a better way to make sure that you're looking up and around at all the things a new city has to offer. Throughout the interview, we also talk about how food is literally growing above our heads, available to harvest for free, and how a lot of that fruit is just dropping and either going to waste or enticing wild animals to come into the cities, which gets them into trouble. Talking about what a missed opportunity all that dropped fruit is led us to also talk about other missed opportunities in urban agriculture. I won't give away too much, so make sure to listen to the whole interview. So without further delay, here's Ethan. I'm really excited to be here talking to you about Falling Fruit. And for those of my listeners who haven't heard of Falling Fruit, can you just kind of explain how it started and what it's all about? Sure. So Falling Fruit is fundamentally a giant map, but it's more fun than that. It's a, it's, first of all, it's global and it's collaborative and anyone can participate. And it's all about sharing knowledge about edible plants in cities around the world. The origin is, I think each of us will have a slightly different version of this story, but for me personally, um, it all started actually when I was, I was uh, thinking up a class project at CU. I'm a grad student at University of Colorado, and I was curious about how I could estimate how much food could be grown in the city. Mm-hmm. And I met a man in, in South Boulder that was running a, basically a farm out of his uh, neighbor's gardens. So he was using their front yards and backyards and, and cultivating land wow. and running it like a CSA, you mm-hmm. know, sort of, uh, farm arrangement. And that inspired me to create, basically model his, you know, his cultivation uh, style <laughs> and, and, and scale it up to the rest of the city. So I was looking, I was actually building a map, a very detailed map of, you know, where there's arable land in the city, where there isn't. I mean, down to, you know, sidewalks and driveways and sheds in the backyard. And for that project, I needed a lot of data from the city. The, one of the layers that I got from the city was a inventory of all of the trees that the city maintains. So along the, along the streets mm-hmm. and maybe even private trees that they have to, to prune to keep, you know, utility lines clear um, on, in parks. And at the time, I was interested in, you know, cultivating uh, garden beds, the, thing, the kind of things that Kip Nash was doing. And so I was cutting out tree footprints from my map. Like, those were not going to be part of it because they were creating shade. Yeah. Um, and you couldn't grow vegetable gardens under a tree very well. And uh, so I, I finished that project. And so I was really thinking about how much food a city could potentially produce you know, and for how many months of the year and to feed how many people 
versus how many people actually live there. And the results are very promising, but it was kind of an upper bound, you know, maximum possible yeah. number. Um, but that was the beginning of my really thinking in a very kind of quantitative and deliberate way about um, the potential of food in cities. Mm. And then a few years later, and I'm, uh, there's apple trees growing in the backyard of the house I'm renting in Boulder, and I, I'm really interested in brewing and in making uh, apple cider. Mm-hmm. And I'm harvesting apples from these trees in our backyard, but then start to think about, well, there must be other trees that are out there <laughs> in the world around me with, yeah. with, with more fruit that I can feed my apple press that I've just acquired. <laughs> and the apple press has a large appetite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I, I started, I was, you know, biking around and I would start to keep my eyes, you know, peeled up in the urban canopy looking for, for apples. And that led me to find, well, there's a lot of apples that grow in, in Boulder, but then there's also lots of other things too. Like I had my first mulberries here and I would find plum trees, all kinds of varieties and uh, apricots and uh, you know peaches and pears and service berries and things planted in um, as as part of the landscaping like Russian sage and there's lavender everywhere and rosemary doesn't do so great but you know other things like there's yeah, elderflowers elderflowers yeah. and I was learning about plants and I was um, I was traveling with a GPS and a notebook and a camera and building my own personal database. And then I remembered that I had this tree inventory from the city of Boulder. <laughs> and that seemed like a great opportunity for a you know, budding forager. Um, so I, I actually went back to that data set. I realized it was, you know, it had this down to the species. Wow. It was the location of individual trees. Of course, I could use this as a kind of a base map, as a starting point for my forays. And I think that's when... I started to wonder if this could be something I could, like this kind of work I was doing for myself could really be shared with others Mm. in some way or another. Um, Could I do this in other cities or teach people how to do that for their own cities? Um, And I I was also just really, really enthusiastic about this because I I had mastered enough locations and learned about the timing that I, by the end of the summer and into the fall, I was no longer buying fruit from the supermarket wow. i was completely independent i was getting all of my you know fruit needs from the streets of boulder wow and that was that was ex- exhilarating so then that winter i was looking for other ways to get involved with food and, and cities and i decided to volunteer for boulder food rescue mm-hmm. which is a, a local nonprofit that does uh um that rescues food, gets donations from grocery stores and other, you know, food retailers, uh, catering companies, restaurants, and delivers it immediately to recipients, or organizations that feed the hungry in the community. And it's all by bike. Yeah, I've <laughs> seen them around. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's a, you feel like a superhero. It's wonderful. Uh, and I went to a meeting in, uh, for Boulder Food Rescue, and that's where I met Caleb, who's a co-founder of Boulder Food Rescue. And he and I bonded over, um, in about 30 seconds, bonded over <laughs> our shared interest in uh, a, a way, a platform that would uh, allow, help foragers like ourselves to share information about you know, edible plants, our, our discoveries. Mm. Um, and I think it was many, you know, late nights and hundreds of emails later that Falling Fruit was born. Yeah. And the map is so cool because I was looking at it, you know, before the interview and I had actually seen it before, but I was looking at it again this morning and I was like, wait, there's an olive tree around the corner from me. How did I not notice this? You know, stuff like that. And where I live, there's, you know, elder bushes and and different things like that, that I've, you know, sort of identified and have taken advantage of, but it's such a great resource to have this like, oh, I'm across town. I have a few minutes, like what's around me that I can just go and see if it's ripe or, you know, it's, and it's worldwide, which is even better. Yeah, I think, and it sounds like you're even a a step uh, ahead of many people. I think the motivation that, that fundamentally, you know, was uh, firing up Caleb and I to create, to spend all of this, you know, thousands of hours to make this is that whenever we would be out, picking cherries on CU campus, like in Caleb's case, or I, I remember, you know, going and harvesting mulberries and people will pass by 
they see you, they're curious, like, what are they doing there? It's out of the ordinary. And their minds are blown. Yeah. <laughs> even, even if it's, maybe they've never, you know, seen a mulberry before. Mm-hmm. But, but for things like cherries or apples or like, you know, the, the charismatic mega edibles <laughs> that also are being sold in the supermarkets at the same time, we've come to expect, we've, We've come to, to, to learn that the city is not a place where food is grown yeah. and where food is not sor- sourced from. And so I think to have food just literally growing above our heads, um, available to harvest for free, yeah. <laughs> and, but, but walking past it every day and not noticing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really a change in, in our perception of the urban environment mm. that's required to start to see these trees and to seek them out and to start to make use of, you know, what, what they're producing. Um, and ultimately if there's, if there's one thing I'd like to see out of falling fruit, of course, of course it is a tool for foragers. Mm-hmm. That was what Caleb and I intended to be. It's, I think we've become more ambitious because it, be, there was such a huge response to the project that we thought, well, you know, in, in a way we're really starting, we're, we're driving conversation about, yeah. you know, the potential of food in cities. And, hey, look, look at, the, you know, these hundreds of thousands of locations around the world. Um, you know, in your city alone, there's thousands of, of trees that are bearing fruit. Um, that means that without even really trying, sort of accidentally, we've, we, we've created environments that, have, that are full of fruit trees already that are not being, you know, taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we decided that we wanted to create even more edible cities. There's, you know, mo- the, most of the trees that we end up planting have no food, you know, have no food value. Right. And so one could imagine a city where most of the trees are fruit trees mm-hmm. or, you know, food-bearing plants of some some sort or another. Yeah. And if we can get past the legislative obstacles and the social obstacles, we could create these, you know, really abundant spaces. Yeah. Right where people are living. Are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think just having having the, the sheer the sheer exhaustive the, our map is very very exhaustive, right? We're we're pulling data from um, existing community data sets. We have these municipal tree inventories that are, you know, very thorough. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course we have our users that every day are adding many, many locations around the world. Um, but we've cast our net really wide and we're not just including, you know, the common apple or the European plum. Right. We're, we're including all kinds of things that can be considered a food source that maybe are popular food sources in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I or, saw some pine trees and yeah, things like, like that. Yeah, uh, there's for pine nuts, you know, mm-hmm. there's, we have, yeah, of course we have mulberries and service berries that are kind of sort of fringe, but still like, you know, um, pretty, they're not the hardcore, you know, the, <laughs> but there's some pretty hardcore things on the map, yeah. like things that even our users have added, I've been surprised about. Um, and, and so that, I think that's part of that is, is just also you know, bringing back old foodways. Mm-hmm. Boulder is full of maple trees, that's and I've always been tempted to try to you know create my own uh, urban maple syrup. That that is, I know people do, you know doing that in Toronto and, mm. and places up you know in Canada where definitely the, the the climate is right for it. I'm not sure if Boulder that would work quite right. Yeah, you need the right temperatures at the right time. Yeah. Um, what other things? I've learned about so many different plants. When he first launched Falling Fruit, it was North America focused, mm. um, obviously Boulder focused, but we were we were setting our sights on the United States, a little bit of Canada, and we had a, such a huge response, and we started to get media attention in other parts of the world, you know, in surprising places, even oh. like India and Poland and. Um, um, we, we figured, well, why stop here? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's cities everywhere and everywhere there's edible plants in those cities and, um, there's people interested in forging or already forging mm-hmm. all over the world. So we just started to accumulate more. We, we, we did two things. We, we started to seek out those same, you know, municipal tree inventories in other parts of the world. We also started to translate the website to uh, 
you know, to address the need of uh, people who don't speak English fluently. <laughs> Fair enough. Up, yeah. <laughs> uh, especially with uh, with plant names, that can be a big challenge. So yeah, translating sure. plant names because maybe there are you know there's people that speak very good English elsewhere, but plant names are very very local. Um, and mm-hmm. so trying to support that, um, and then we also have so we sort of, we spread our reach to the world. And there's a huge backlog of tree inventories I have, hundreds of them. Wow. That, um, right now, I'm actually developing uh, improved software tools to make it a little bit easier to process them and to match the items in these databases to our species taxonomy. Yeah. And that, so we have to support to be able to translate plant names, to be able to uh, filter the map for different species mm-hmm. and, or maybe by genus, you know, or by groups of species, we have to keep a very a strict taxonomy yeah. of the types of edible things that we have on the map. Uh, and so then when we import other data sets, we have to match those to our existing taxonomy and it becomes very, uh, very techy. <laughs> very yeah, quickly. it sounds like it. But on like my experience when I went on, it was really cool to see that I could click on the wiki link to like see what kind of olive tree this was that lives next to me, you know? Um, yeah, so that that's another big piece of it is that by keeping you know by letting you know, Latin names rule rule them all, it also allows us to tie to other kinds of content because that's sort of that that shared language is yeah. like the Latin name because then oh then I I know that I'm getting the right thing on you know in Wikipedia or in other other sources you know other references yeah um, there's. Then also, I, I think we we started to learn, we started to realize that there were other types of people that wanted to use the site and that could benefit hmm. from the, the site. And I, I think the progression was, first it was foragers, <laughs> that's what it started with, but then there was also always, there were always some dumpsters on the map. So... Um, locations where food was being wasted, but the, you know where there were overflowing piles of still very edible and delicious food yeah. that could be liberated <laughs> from that <laughs> terrible fate. Um, and we had there was always always dumpster divers using the map, um, but then we made a deliberate effort to uh, collect a lot of existing knowledge mm. of um, of. Dumpsters, other kinds of uh, sort of freegan locations, so yeah. maybe even free stores or free markets and places where things are being shared freely, um, and including those on the map, and then you know uh, telling that community, hey, we've you know come and use the site if if right. you want, uh, in creating this unified this one place, this gathering place for all these people. Yeah. Um, with all of the knowledge of tediously, painfully brought together <laughs> and checked with Google Street View and yeah. this, uh, very, very thorough. Um, and then f- after that, we we, um, we became interested in ways to um, flip the database for use in other ways. So um, we started to include actually all species, not just edible species. Oh, cool. So they're all there. They're just not necessarily shown to you if you're in forger mode. Oh. Um, but we can actually um, flip a switch, and then the map is showing you trees that are of interest and, and other food plants of interest to pollinators, like honeybees, mm. to support urban beekeepers and, and ways to track where there's good food sources for, for honeybees, which, which are in, you know, in decline and are, are, they need our help yeah. <laughs> because we're the source of all this problem in the first place. <laughs> um, and, and then from there, um, we, we partnered with uh, gorilla grafters who their interest is in taking trees that are not fruit bearing that have been planted, often planted by uh, city officials, right. <laughs> uh, and make them fruit bearing by grafting on oh, a, wow. a fruiting variety. Um, and that's, uh, so that's another mode that one can, can go into on the map to reveal all of these non-fruit bearing, sort of decorative, you know, so, uh, flowering cherries and flowering palms and, uh, you know, decorative varieties mm. that can support, um, uh, fruit bearing branches. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I don't know what the next, the next interest group will be, yeah, but we're always evolution. excited to, to include them. Um, one thing that's been fun recently is uh, 
partnering with the Invasive or uh, is actually a, an organization, a website, but also a movement to uh, to eat invasive plants <laughs> and animals. And animals. I saw the squirrel thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that's another way we can you know we can try to ed- I think educate people and also. Um, facilitate certain kinds of behavior yeah. that are, are beneficial so like you know if there's there's species on that could we do watch to see if there's species that are endangered we wouldn't want that right. but at the same time if it's invasive in a particular area we really want to, in, to encourage people to feed on those plants right yeah and and so of course but of course we have to be careful because not all plants are invasive everywhere mm-hmm. right only in specific places and mm-hmm. so we have a way to uh, we we have a, a, a geographic database of where certain plants are invasive and where they aren't. Wow. Um, falling fruit is is the culmination of basically two data scientists coming together and building <laughs> a tool for foragers. And yeah. so it's no surprise that you know there's millions of locations and there's you know a very well structured database uh, with species taxonomy and polygons of invasiveness. <laughs> Things that I would never be able to conceptualize outside of this. <laughs> our our next big project, at least this is one of my, well, of the most often requested feature is to tell me where things are ripe. Mm. Tell me what's ripe in my area now. Yeah. And we could just sort of piecemeal it and and you know start to. Um, start to make note, you know, we have to create a, a new, to, to be able to, to achieve that globally for all the species in the database now is an enormous task for which there exists no, there is nothing out there now yeah. that would allow us to do that. So, one way we can start to do that is by collecting information from our users. Mm-hmm. You know, well, tell me at this location, was this apple ripe or not? Right. Um, and we do do that. We do provide a way for, you know, from the website or from the mobile app, a way to report on the status of mm-hmm. the plant. Um, but we're not going to, it's, we're, it'll take us a long time to get enough information for enough plants to start to, you know, to do scale that up to the world uh, and to be able to actually predict you know, at this elevation and this latitude, <laughs> yeah. with this much moisture, you know, because we have, we can with include this climate data. That we just had, the spring <laughs> oh that we boy, just had, okay, like... let's not even get that far. <laughs> um, so I, we can maybe switch gears a little bit. Sure. I um, actually found out about you or kind of re-found out about you, um, well, about falling fruit through Fior de Latte Gelato that's here in Boulder. Awesome. Yeah, I was at the farmer's market looking for some chocolate ice cream and she was like, no, you got to try this cherry ice cream that we just got in from Falling Fruit. And I was like, what is this? What is Falling Fruit? Tell me more. <laughs> so, you know, that night I went home and researched and I was like, oh my gosh, I saw this and forgot about it and the whole thing. So here I am. Um, do you have other collaborations with with other local places that carry fruit that's foraged from Boulder? No, so the the gelato, the, the gelato collaboration that we do with Fiori Latte, that's the... F- First, really, we've we've tried for a long time to partner. We had this idea we wanted to make like a foraged cider or a beer mm. or a wine. Yeah, <laughs> and we did approach a lot of uh, alcohol makers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we we learned after there there were some nibbles, but ultimately we learned that the volumes they were operating at were going to be well beyond our yeah. abilities. Yeah. <laughs> And and so then I, um, my my partner and I, she she lived in Italy, a couple of years, and we stumbled upon Fior di Latte and really impressed. Wow, this is delicious. Yeah. Best ice cream in town. And <laughs> and I when I, I I heard that they make their gelato fresh every day, mm-hmm. I thought, huh, that's a really small scale. Yeah. That's maybe something that we could operate at. And so I, then I approached uh, the the owner. Um, Bryce and you know followed the idea with him and he was super excited and so we've done so far Jeff and I have gone out and harvested sour cherries and mulberries and also some elderflower and lavender I'm not sure if they've used those yet um it was a little late on the elderflowers unfortunately mm. but that's a traditional Italian yeah a lot of flavor 
that people don't know very much, from, you know, like here in the U.S. And it's yeah, it's a neat collaboration. I'm, I'm excited that we're finally getting to produce something, you know, delicious food from Forge Fruit, and to have the pleasure of other people getting pleasure from it, yeah. and to learn about. To to taste firsthand that you know the the the, the food of the city is delicious, mm-hmm. and that they could they could go out themselves and get yeah. the same things for themselves. So that's that's been really satisfying. And um, yeah, we'd love to do more partnerships like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a matter of finding the right the right scale. And yeah. um, I think I think our involvement in the in a lot of our energy towards the community has been um, funneled towards community fruit rescue. Mm. And so that's been a way, so that was, uh, that was falling fruit, boulder fruit rescue for, so falling fruit for just sort of the, the knowledge of harvesting and foraging and promoting the, that, those behaviors, uh, boulder fruit rescue for donate, donation of, of the harvest, mm-hmm. Boulder Bear Coalition for the, the wildlife conservation component of foraging. Yep. Since, um, you know, falling fruit in cities is a huge attractant to bears in particular. Mm. Other animals too, but bears are the ones that are going to get themselves in trouble yeah. and eventually shot. Yeah, um, which has so happened here. It has happened here, and that's why the Boulder Bear Coalition exists. And the idea is, that if you're harvesting fruit, especially in kind of border towns like like Boulder mm. or Squamish in British Columbia or um, some towns in Montana who also have bear conservation, mm. fruit picking efforts. Wow. Um, it's, it's just as important as many, you know, controlling your trash. And then um, also 350 Colorado, they're interested in sustainable cities mm-hmm. and, you know, low impact. And so we all came together, we're all based in Boulder, and we started Community Fruit Rescue, which is this neighborhood uh, fruit harvesting program mm-hmm. where we match, um, we ra- match residents who have trees on their property to volunteers who are excited about harvesting fruit and then uh, the uh, the residents get to keep some if they want the volunteers get to keep some and then uh, a third or more gets distributed across the city to uh, all the all the places that uh, Boulder Food Rescue serves as well as Boulder Valley School District they have this big kitchen and they make a giant amount of uh, applesauce I think (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah, I feel like part of the um, hesitation of people when they think about city fruits and, and like food coming from cities is something that I've often heard because there's an apple tree right outside of the office where I work. And almost all the people that notice that it's an apple tree say, oh, they're poisonous because they're crab apples. So I, I feel like there's this weird, this weird thing where people just assume that you can't eat the fruit that they see around them because... I don't know, it comes from a city, or there's these myths from childhood, or, you know, I don't know. And it's like, no, they're not poisonous. You know, you can use them for a lot of different things. You might not want to just take a bite out of it, because it's kind of mealy, maybe. But you can use it for so many different edible things. I feel, I've, I've, I, there's a list of things that I've observed as obstacles. And definitely there's, there's, I mean, yours sort of touches on several at once, I think. Mm. There's a strong urban-rural divide, and this idea that, if you've come, if you've made it this far, you know, come to the city, <laughs> you've left behind yeah. uh, these, the, the need to grow your own this, food, yeah, idea the need to be looking for your own food. Well, yeah. it's, it's, I think also is a strong class hmm. divide too. Um, there's HOAs in Boulder that still, you know, refuse people the right to grow vegetable, have vegetable gardens in their front yards. Mm. So there's a very strong social stigma against food production in cities. Mm. And not just in somewhere like Boulder, where we can get away with it, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. Also places like Nairobi, where there's, uh, there's communities of people that are definitely have limited access yeah. to fresh produce yeah. and even in those communities there's strong stigmas against people trying to start urban farms and you know cultivating the so land in the city huh. so because there are the ideas like no we're in the city now we're not we're not rural peasants anymore mm. but they're hungry like they're they're not and then they're lacking access to fresh produce and so these are very very strong forces at play so that's maybe one and then the next is just more of a perception issue is, well, we're in the city. There can't possibly be food 
here, and so it, things just go overlooked, and, yeah. or they're assumed to be, well, there's an apple tree here, but it's in the city, so it's probably poisonous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's kind <laughs> and, of mind-blowing. And then part of that, I think the other side of that is just people don't have, they're not confident in their abilities to recognize yeah. these things. Uh, and that's, a lot of it is, you know, just what they've done, like, if, if they've been out to harvest these fruits in the past, mm -hmm. if they know what the plant looks like, that's more of just learning about yeah. um, recognizing different plants. Right, and actually I have a question about that. I know that there's a few different um, apps out there that are, it's like the Shazam for plants. Have, have you heard of any of them, or can you recommend any of them? Because I know it's kind of hard to... I don't know, to figure out, like, oh, I see that this is a pretty flower on a tree. Will it turn into fruit or, you know? <laughs> or maybe the flower's edible. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I can't really recommend any because I haven't really used any. Yeah. Um, I know of a few. There's, um, do I know of a few? I've, I've, I've short, briefly tested a couple, hmm. but it's long enough ago that yeah. I can't really speak to that. There, I know there's a, there, was a pro, there is a project. It's like a university project where you can take pictures of a leaf against a black background and it can I, it can attempt to identify the plant for you. Interesting. Um, which is very sort of Shazam-like, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, and then there's definitely uh, plant identification guides mm. uh, turned into mobile apps that are definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Okay. I so <laughs> I, I've mostly, I've done a lot of research. I, I tend to do that kind of work back home you know, I'll take pictures, I'll check. It usually takes a while to build, get enough reference, you know, see enough pictures, read enough l articles and references to get, to convince myself that, okay, I know this is the right, right. thing. Yeah. So it's not something I tend to do on the run, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'll just, I'll take a picture with my camera, uh, you know, has geolocation. Mm -hmm. I know exactly where the picture was taken. I can always go back later. Yeah. Um, then, uh, so... Sorry, back to... Yeah, I mean, so, so identification is a big one. Um, but I think not nearly the, the most difficult. Hmm. Um, because all these... I think once people are looking, they, once people know to look, once people feel comfortable, you know, um, and free to, uh, to be out harvesting fruit and not be considered a homeless person, or, right. you know, yeah. or, or maybe hopefully someday homeless people can also feel comfortable, you know, harvesting yeah. fruit. I mean, it's just out there, you know, there's a lot of fruit out there dropping, going to waste. It's, it's a huge missed opportunity, mm -hmm. um, not, not just to feed ourselves locally, super locally, yeah. but also just, it's just a fun way to discover a city and it's really good for, you know, it's great therapy. Yeah, and it's eating yeah. seasonally, which eating is something that's kind of good. gone by the wayside. Yeah, too. it's good, it's good, I think it's great knowledge, you know, of working with plants on their cycles mm -hmm. and the t their timing, um, and getting comfortable with um, getting one's food. There's a, definitely some amount of independence that you get from yeah. being able to source your food yourself, and learning about these plants and communing with them in some way, mm -hmm. you know, learning where your food comes from firsthand mm -hmm. without having to go very far, that's yeah. really, really valuable, I think, in a world where, you know, over half the world population lives in cities mm -hmm. and far away from where our food is grown. Yeah. Um, and so these are, there's a, I guess there's a deep pedagogical value in urban foraging. Mm -hmm. The other obstacle that... In, in that list I was building um, would be this idea that cities are dirty places mm. and so the, the, the fruit can't possibly be healthy and, and safe. Mm. Of course in some cases you know there's it's like <laughs> I don't think I'd want to be harvesting necessarily in on Rocky Flats which is in, you know in, which is close to the public because it's got radioactive decay happening everywhere. And, yeah, yeah. I mean obviously there's some sites that are you know they're very have been heavily impacted they're heavily polluted mm. that's one thing but most in most time in most places in most cases the fruit growing in cities because most cities aren't spraying agrochemicals wildly everywhere yeah. because there's people living here the fruit that you actually forage in cities can be it certainly is 
in many cases, much more clean mm. than the any sort of conventional produce that you can buy at the store. Right. Um, and in many cases, it's basically de facto organic. Right. Um, and there are, you know, there's people who try to avoid harvesting along highways or places where there's a, a huge amount of traffic and, mm -hmm. and, and exhaust fumes. And, you know, fair enough. Um, I have not personally seen studies really showing that that's... I think that there should be more work done on this. Mm. I would love to see studies looking at, you know, how much is too much or, you know, are there situations where fruit is, is less safe? But I've also seen a study that basically shows that, yeah, actually urban fruit tends to be um, more on the, you know, towards the, or on the organic end of the spectrum yeah. versus conventional produce that where a lot of chemicals are used, which would not which wouldn't be safe to use in cities because yeah. they're places where people inha you know, inhabit. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's actually the other way around than what people, most people expect. You know, it's, it's probably going to be certainly going to be more fresh and more local, yeah. and <laughs> but also more better. clean yeah. and, you know, tree ripened. So, you know, it'll, it, it may taste better because you've allowed, you've gotten it just at the right time and it hasn't had to travel very far, mm -hmm. but also cleaner than what we can buy at the store. Um, so there's all kinds of benefits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I bet um, for herbalists too, it could be really great for things that, you know, most people might not think of as necessarily edible, but, you know, they can use them, forage different herbs to make, you know, different um, remedies and things like that, mm -hmm. um, which could be interesting too. You yeah. know, like lilacs you might not think of as necessarily edible but they make a good jam you know <laughs> sure well that's that's edible and yeah yeah you and then you can also rose petals yeah or... and you can also use it as like a facial astringent and like so many different things mm -hmm. that you wouldn't necessarily think of as like picking and eating right yeah we Caleb and I had early on there were a lot of important side design decisions or at least they mm -hmm. felt very important to us and yeah. you know we had long arguments or you know friendly arguments about <laughs> Should we have a field that um, makes makes it more more formally states the access issues for the mm -hmm. location? You know, whether it's public or private, overhanging public public right away, mm -hmm. and we decided to to allow that, and I think that was the right decision. But you know, we part of the project is also trying to to facilitate or to break down barriers and to you know make a statement about what we consider. I'm not, you know, we're not condoning trespass, but we're saying, look, it, maybe it's it's on someone's land, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily making good use of it. Right. And maybe they'd be delighted for you to go and knock on their door and ask if you can, you know, harvest from their tree. And trying to trying to break down some of those barriers and allow people to talk to each other. Yeah. And to um, have conversations about about this resource. Mm -hmm. And that that dialogue itself elevates the resource right and it yeah. makes it feel more valued and um we had there's some home uh, homeowners in the um, community fruit rescue program that told us we were about to cut down this fruit tree because we didn't want to deal with the mess mm -hmm. and i'm glad that we found out about you guys you know before we did that yeah that's great because now we can have people harvesting it and we don't have to cut down the tree and yeah. we don't have to have our mess and and the tree can stand yeah um so you know i think ultimately forges can also be this sort of beacon <laughs> shining an appreciative light on on plants that may have lost um uh, they're following, mm. even if it's in many cases trees that were planted by people at some time in in the past. Yeah, well, like nut poisonous crab apples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very edible crab apples. And so there's you know a big part of it is then also I mean we're not really doing this ourselves at falling fruit, but um, with community fruit rescue, I'd love to have some workshops, uh, ways of you know teaching people how to preserve these different things, yeah. what to do with unripe pears and apples. You know you can mm -hmm. you can make you can make things with those yeah. but you have to kind of know know how to go about it and mm -hmm. just have the idea in the first place right um so it's, there's definitely a lot of knowledge uh, often old knowledge that has yeah. to be brought back it's true um, well it's kind of like home economics which i have to talk about <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's true the re one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to you is because you know not only is there the community aspect of the 
falling fruit, you know, food rescue part of it, um, you know, but also this idea of like ancient knowledge or not even that ancient knowledge that is not used anymore and a lot of people don't even know exists because there hasn't been access to that knowledge. Um, you know, in a while, and maybe it's just a couple generations, but it's still, you know, kids aren't necessarily growing up in cities looking around them thinking, I could pick that apple and eat it. They're just like walking past without even noticing. So I think, you know, part of that ties into home economics because you can not only learn to cultivate the community around you to look for those things, but also talk to other people and find out like, oh, did your, you know, grandma do anything with these unripe pears? You know, how did she deal with this or whatever, you know? Um, make jams or, you know, preserve them in some way to last through the winter. Um, things like that, I think, are definitely lacking and, and needed, for sure. Absolutely. So it's exciting to see things that are popping up that help cultivate that idea. Yeah. I, I get great pleasure from scouring the internet. We're actually just seeing where our, you know, our site is being linked from mm -hmm. and finding blog posts about you know, people finding our site and going out for the first time yeah. and discovering things using falling fruit and then making things with the with what they bring back. Yeah, so I, is... I do feel like we've really made, we have made a dent. Like there, our falling fruit is often referred to in passing on, uh, on articles that have very little to do with falling fruit, but yeah. have something to do about, you know, cities and food. And, um, and so I think, it's exciting that we have definitely I think we have definitely contributed to a conversation about what our cities should look like in the future mm. and how we should think about cities and, and the possibilities of cities. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's true that I think once, once you open your eyes to, you know, falling fruit, things like that, then like the possibilities are kind of endless because <laughs> like it just doesn't end because you can, you know, look for well water, you can look for beehives, you can look for, you know, all dumpsters, you can look for all these different things that, um, you know, pick your, pick your thing that you want to look for and it's going to be there somewhere and to have a resource for people to go and find those things is great. And then once you found it, you can add it to the map yeah. and share it with other people. Yeah, yeah, it's so great. Yeah. And that's okay because they're doing the same thing for you. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. There's always someone who says, no, but I don't want to share my spots. Well, but there's thousands that other people have shared and so you can benefit from that and mm -hmm. you'll soon find that it's, it's, there's not a lack. Yeah. <laughs> there, if if any, so there's. I always like to use this example of Toronto because it's so far the largest tree inventory I've worked with. Hmm. And so there's, I think it was six hundred ninety thousand street trees individually mapped by the city. Wow. It's an amazing number. Uh, but that's actually just a fraction of all the trees. I think it totals about two and a half million trees. So it comes out to about four trees per person wow. throughout the city. And. Only about 90,000 of the 600 and so thousand mm -hmm. are things that I would display in the forger mode of falling fruit. Right. But that's really casting the net wide. So that's, you know, the ma maple trees, good for ma making maple syrup. And that's mm -hmm. things like um, black locusts that have edible blossoms and things that people have not heard of necessarily, uh, as long as well as the you know, the charismatic mega edibles, which yeah. are just about 10,000 trees. Wow. And so that's a really tiny fraction of all of the trees that the city has deliberately planted around this. I mean, cities are engineer environments. Mm. They're in large part, you know, except for some parks and along creek beds in Boulder, they're designed by us yeah. and deliberately constructed. And so it's, our choice where we're putting fruit trees and what we're not putting fruit trees. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, I think we have understanding that we have that we, we are the ones making those choices. And so we can make different choices and maybe make, put more food production into yeah, place yeah. and invest in more food production. And, um, as the demand increases, if we have more people living in cities who are thinking about going and harvesting that tree next time they pass, you know, next time they walk by because they're, it's close to being ripe, and you know, having a, a larger base of of the citizens of the residents of that city 
um, keeping their eyes open and actively participating in the harvest, it'll also be easier to convince cities <clears throat> that they should be planting more. Yeah. Because their, their biggest concerns are, well, in some cases, that fruit trees tend to be a bit more temperamental and just hard, a little bit harder to maintain, so that's part of it. But mainly, what I've heard from cities who are resistant to some of these ideas is that it just makes a mess. And it makes a mess only because no one's harvesting them. Yeah, it's true. And so if you have, you know, hordes of villagers going around <laughs> harvesting fruit, which is what it what actually happens in other countries yeah. that are that have really cultivated uh, themselves as har- as harvesters, um, there's a lot of public orchards. You know, like in Israel, there's a big culture of, of um, foraging, and there's there's olive trees all over the country mm. that have been planted, and everyone harvests from those, and you know sort of watches you know for waits for that, that yeah, moment in yeah. the year. Um, so there's definitely you know culture building yeah, that needs to be done, true. and there's and then also then it's the there's city building mm. where we actually create an environment that matches our new interests. Yeah. And, capacities I guess yeah and I I was having a conversation with a friend um the other day I think she's from Minnesota and she was saying that every year in the springtime they have these big parties these big horseradish parties because it's like the first thing that's um that you can pick you know it's the first thing that you can harvest that's ripe or not well not ripe but you know that's edible and and everything so they just get together and have these horseradish parties like let's kick off the time we can be outside with horseradish because it's the first thing you can get you know and it just sounds so kind of magical and fun (laughs) (laughs) like kind of odd too but really magical and fun and it would be great to like have a community in a city that's like you know, got their eyes on all these different trees and things like that and be like, let's make a, like, this is the Boulder Cherry Party because all the cherries are getting ripe now, you know, like kind of thing in different cities would be really fun um, and community building. and mm-hmm. um, Yeah, and I think, and I think the, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing, actually I'm not sure about the horseradish, if those are wild growing in that case, yeah. or if it's something that they've planted from yeah. the previous, you know, that's overwintered and now it's ready for harvest. But we occasionally will get, you know, we'll get a, an, an email from a user saying, you know, I don't know about, I'm, I'm hesitant about this because you're directing all these people to pick wild species. And that's certainly, people are welcome to map whatever they want on falling mm. fruit. And certainly that's, that's something one can do. Mm-hmm. But the enormous focus of the site and where most of the locations happen to be are right in cities and often they're, Ones that we planted, that humans have actually planted, yeah. that have, are not wild species, um, or they're not even, in many cases, they're you know popular landscaping <laughs> species yeah. that have nothing to do with a local ecosystem that um, you know that we've decided to inject into our city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we also get a. I mean, I think that's an important distinction to make. There's wild foraging, and then there's urban foraging. Yeah. And I, I. It's important to me that we're focusing on the urban foraging because we are trying to make this big. Like we're trying to make this a movement. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's appropriate with wild foraging. Yeah. You know, that's something that, that is that's supported by the website, but it's not not the focus and it's not directly encouraged. Mm-hmm. And so we're focusing on, okay, invasives um, or just anything in the city, um, which is much, you know, it's a there's humans can make a lot less of an impact there because we've basically changed the whole thing already. Yeah. Um, and that's where there's this potential for uh, planting things that, you know, s- serve our needs and yeah. to create a different food culture. And it doesn't have to have any impact on, you know, wild species populations. Mm. Yeah. And there's also the <clears throat> aspect of like, look up, you know, like especially in cities because I think, you know, and, people can get caught up in the everyday, like, go from here to there, get in the car, drive from work to home to the grocery store to, you know, like, all these places. And there's a sweet aspect of of foraging in a city, of urban foraging, that's like, look up and look around you and see, like, take in everything, like, these plants that are around you that you wouldn't notice otherwise, mm-hmm. unless you look, you right. know? We're sharing our, our neighborhoods with all of these other species, yeah. and we have to celebrate that. Yeah. We should celebrate that. And we... And the proximity, of course, is the, the big draw. Yeah. You know, you'll have to go, you don't have to go very far to experience 
some amount of wildness. Mm-hmm. And to appreciate <laughs> and, the and fruits that it gives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a win-win. Really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, being, you're being compensated for you know, spending time with these plants. Right, like, yeah. You're getting something out of it that's very tangible <laughs> and real. So it is, it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's not just, uh, I've, I've said before, um, urban foraging is this gateway drug to other forms of urban agriculture. Yeah. But I think it also is a, a gateway into um, interest in, in nature in many other, in all its forms. Yeah. 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 Well, I love everything that you're doing and I'll put all the links to not only the local projects that you're involved in, but also the Falling Fruits website for everybody on the blog. And yeah, do you have any tips for anyone if they're like just starting out and checking out the Falling Fruits website? Hmm. Tips. Well, get the mobile app. Because <laughs> that's definitely a lot easier to use than the website because you can do it while you're moving around, which is Perfect. what you'll be doing when you're, when you're foraging. Um, and then let us know if, if, you know, if you have... Uh, feature requests or any feedback we'd love to hear from our users um, I think I think it's good to start with things that you know and you'll know more things than you expect you know <laughs> yeah um, to forage from in your in your neighborhood um, the, for for people who don't live in Boulder, which has been thoroughly mapped, <laughs> there's plenty still that hasn't that isn't on the map. There's an elder bush where I live that I'm gonna map. <laughs> uh-huh. So there's plenty of opportunities to be a pioneer even in Boulder, but yeah. there are definitely parts of the world where there's less good coverage, and I think rather than feel lonely and then not want to participate, you should start. Um, you should be a pioneer and map out places in your neighborhood. And also be in touch with us. Maybe we can get the tree inventory from your city or your university campus or your canton or your whatever <laughs> section of government you're <laughs> is operating um, to, to fill out the map, which also helps attract other users and you know, we can try to work with you to build um, your, your foraging community wherever you happen to be. Great. Well, I'm excited to see if you get some more new users in some remote places. <laughs> and thanks so much again. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Modern Domestique podcast, and a really big thanks to Ethan for today's conversation. To learn more about Falling Fruit or any of the other projects mentioned in this episode, head over to the Modern Domestique website for all the links and more information. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please make sure to leave a rating or a review so that other people can find this podcast too. As always, I'd love to hear about your takeaways from today's episode, so please make sure to stay in touch on the website, Facebook, or Instagram. Thanks again for tuning in, and have a very modern domestic day.